All right. Well, welcome to Faded Mates, everyone. I am Sarah McLean. I write romance novels and read romance novels. I'm Jen Reads Romance on Twitter. I don't write, but I do read a lot, and we have a very special guest with us tonight. Joanna Shoup is here, everyone. I'm so excited to have her. I talked about her book, Tycoon, last week, um, because I love it a whole lot. And last interstitial, that is. Um, And Joanna, welcome, welcome. Thanks for coming to Fate of Mates. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I love the podcast. Oh, thanks. You're our one listener. (laughs) Oh, come on now. (laughs) Whatever. We would do it without any listeners. That's what's weird about us. I think Um, that's actually true, for sure. (laughs) It is. Well, we basically, the reason why we're doing it is because we basically were doing it. Well, you you both know. Joanna knows. Joanna, poor Joanna, had to go on a road trip with me recently that was, that involved, like, a lot of time in, in a car with me talking about romance novels, like, just at her. So she, like, lived Faded Mates for a little while. It was delightful. <laughs> it's kind of what I want to do all day. I don't, I don't think that's anything wrong with that. No, it's great. And what's great about Sarah is that she has this Rain Man level of <laughs> memory when it comes to romance novels. And I'll just say, yeah, there was this one book by this one author, and it was kind of blah, blah, blah. She'd be like, oh, yeah, that was, you know, I mean, she, the, the recall is. But you stumped me. You took me to a place I so Joanna, <laughs> you love a bonkers romance. I that I do. And you like we you we were down the rabbit hole on Laura Lee, who I like somehow missed in the first round. Yeah, Wildcard. Uh, You'd never read Wildcard. Oh, that's right. I remember this from Twitter. You know like, what was this book? And it was he was what was it? The hero was drugged to have a lot of sex. Yes, he has been given, he's been given a drug, he's been held captive, the heroine thinks he's dead, he comes back, but he's had some kind of surgery that she can't recognize him, but she kind of recognizes him, and then he's been given a drug where he just wants to bone all the time, it's, it's crazy. It seems normal. Was the name of the drug toxic masculinity? (laughs) Possibly, possibly. Uh, yeah. It's, you know what's ironic is this is actually, you guys are never going to believe this, the perfect segue to the book Joanna wants to talk to us about tonight. <laughs> it's one of the books Joanna wants to talk to us about tonight. But my point is, it's also a perfect segue to the fact that, jo- of course, if this is the book that we spent a good half hour in a car talking about on 95 South in the middle of the night then it is obvious that Joanna Shoup loves Immortals After Dark. Oh, yes. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I, love a, I love a bananas plot, and Cresley's got that covered. And I also love Enemies to Lovers, and I feel like almost every Immortals After Dark book is Enemies to Lovers, at least at the very start, because it's, you know, you're a werewolf, or you're like a, I hate like a, you're a vampire, I hate vampires. And... uh over the course of the book, you know, they obviously fall in love. And so that's, I think that's why I love every single Immortals After Dark book. So how did you come to IAD? It may have been you. (gasps) Really? (laughs) I think it was. Yeah. Because you and I were having a conversation about um, 
you know, neither one of us are paranormal fans. And I think I had said, you know, I just paranormal is just not a genre that I I read. And you said, well, yeah, me neither. But I mean, you have read this, right? <laughs> and uh, and then did I describe the first scene of A Hunger Like No Other to you? Yes, absolutely. He gnaws off his own leg. And yeah. Joanna's like, let me buy 18 bucks. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. And I think I had burned through seven of them in like three days. And my wallet was screaming. And I think I was texting you saying... I can't stop. I mean, it's like, yeah, no. I have a problem. I haven't seen my kids. <laughs> They're eating cereal out of, you know, cold cereal out of a bowl for dinner. I haven't seen them in days. What's You're happening? Like, Mommy needs a wolf hologram. Uh, right. There you go. <laughs> well, it's funny because I love paranormal. I read it a lot. I like to be cut loose from these human concerns. It's interesting because paranormal sort of lends itself to bonkers plots. And so it's sort of a surprise that a lot of us come to paranormal late in, in our romance reading. It is overwhelming as a genre, I think, because there's so much of it, right? Especially 10 years ago, I felt like it was like post-Twilight. Part of maybe one of the reasons was like, how do you know what's good? I think paranormal is where those sort of like crazy old school plots move to, right? Because Joanna writes uh, beautiful Gilded Age historicals, we should say. And they're set in New York City and absolutely amazing. Um, but neither Joanna nor I, I think, could write the plots of those sort of crazy old, the really old school, like 70s and 80s historicals. We just couldn't. Um, and I think paranormals can. Yeah, I think you're right. So, Joanna, you were going to go to – there was a possibility that you and, and uh, Jenny from The Wicked Wallflowers um, might end up in sort of a cage match. I, I'm ready to throw down over <laughs> Kiss of a Demon King. So, so Jenny was with us last week to talk about Kiss of a Demon King. And when I said to you, hey, Joanna, do you want to come on Beta Mates and talk to us? You said, absolutely, but I want to come on to talk about Kiss of a Demon King. <laughs> and I said, well, okay. And so now here we are sort of cheating because you're going to be able to talk about it too. And tell me why. Well, I think when I read when I read Cade's book and you get, you know, the vision of Rydstrom and he's this just kind of uptight, always do the right thing. He's so judgmental. He's so the big brother you would never, ever want to have. And then we get to the point in Cade's book where Rydstrom answers the door and he's just <laughs> gone off the deep end. And, you know, you hear Sabine uh, screaming, you know, help me, he's got me chained to the bed. And my brain just went, oh, chained to the bed? Say what? <laughs> and uh, that for me was like, I mean, I think I one-clicked Kiss of a Demon King so fast. <laughs> I just, I, I don't even think I stopped between Cade's book and Rydstrom's book and just immediately went into, you know, her kidnapping him, chaining him to a bed. He gets loose you know, it's all about revenge. It's liter literally everything I love is wrapped up in that book. Demon horns, everything. Yeah. <laughs> love it. There it is. Now you're talking Sarah's real love language. <laughs> yeah, well, that's an amazing moment because I think one of the things I'm really interested in is characters who, like, seem to be so straightforward and then, like, boom, there's the change. And that moment is shocking. Yeah. Right? Like, what on earth is Rides from doing? And I, the word that comes to my brain is, like, feral. Right. He's completely unhinged. 
He has no shirt on. His jeans aren't even buttoned. He's got no shoes on. He's bleeding. I think Sabine has scratched his cheek at that point. I mean, he's like completely feral is a great description. And I love that this goes back to just Cade being such a weirdo and like an amazing weirdo. But he has this moment where he's like, so everything cool? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And walks away saying, oh, I guess I'm no longer the bad brother. Yeah. You know, like, all right. (laughs) Yeah. And why he doesn't help, you know, help the damsel in distress was is a little. Come on, Cade. There's a woman in there. Come on. This is what's really interesting because you went on this endless road trip that we did where we were talking about this book. You said to me, I love it because it's an echo. Kiss of a Demon King is an echo of Prisoner of My Desire. And my head blew off the top (laughs) of my body because Joanna Lindsay's Prisoner of My Desire is a real experience. It's a book that if you've read it, Um, And uh, many, many of us who started reading romance in the early days of romance have read it. (laughs) Um, If you read it in, I don't even know when it was published. 1991. I I looked it up. Oh. Oh, yeah. 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 (laughs) Of course it was. (laughs) If you read it in the 90s, I I feel like Prisoner of My Desire might have been like one of the texts of my sexual awakening in some like very (laughs) weird way. Um. I have read it multiple times in the past. Jen just read it for the first time this week. Yes. Oh, so I can't, so can't I wait. wait. <laughs> I, I don't, ladies, but I, I don't really feel like I'm speechless about romance that often. <laughs> and I was reading this book and I was like, I, I felt like I was looking around the room like for candid camera. Like it was an elaborate, a very elaborate hoax Whereby Sarah, even though she was on deadline and Joanna had somehow like written this crazy ass motherfucking thing and been like, oh, yeah, sure. This is totally a real romance. And I was like falling for it. Like it was like the romance Landia version of like whatever that old show is. And they pop out and they're like, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Romance candid camera. Yes. Like my, I was in the same room with my husband and I was like, he's like, what are you reading? And I was like, nothing. <laughs> no, nothing. Go back to watching the football. It's problematic. <laughs> it's bonkers, but it's problematic. So let's, we should just say that up front. I feel like problematic is like. That's kind of kind, right? Like, like milk <laughs> toast description of this fucking crazy book. But you finished it, Jen. Oh, yeah. I read that whole motherfucking thing, you guys. I was like, what is going to happen? Here's, I'm also really curious, like, when you read Kiss of the Demon King, were you immediately like, oh, I see this? Oh, yes. Like, oh, Me? Okay. Yes. Okay, yeah. Okay. As soon as, yes, as soon as she was uh, chaining him to the bed. You knew. I was like, well, of course he's going to get loose. And, of course, this is the callback to now Cade's book because I know at some point from Cade's book that he's got her chained to the bed later. So yeah, immediately. So I think we should, for for listeners who haven't had the pleasure, <laughs> um, let's do a quick recap. Jen, do you want to do it since you uh, just oh, no. read it? I, I, I mean, you guys, I'm not really worthy. I'm going to let Joanna take this one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there is a lady, Rowena, 
Uh, she has an evil step brother who is secretly in love with her, which should, you know, that's oh, Echo. Right. That's Omort and uh, Sabine. The stepbrother wants her land, wants her to get pregnant. And I can't remember. He doesn't even care who it is because the guy that she was supposed to marry. Okay, wait, who, who, see, I'm all like, wait, you're going to have to let me do it. She's a widow. No, she's not. <laughs> yes, she fucking is. He dies on their wedding night. He's essentially like, get down there and lick my, like he's 90. And it's like a withered old penis. Uh, she's yes. a virgin widow. Yes. Right, and, virgin widow. And, and it's literally like in the bedroom that night. And he's like, get down here and do it. And she's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Like you're, <laughs> I know it's about to happen, but you need to take care of it. And he's like, and he kills over dead. And then her evil stepbrother comes in and is like, if you don't get pregnant immediately, like tonight, then you cannot, we can't get his land. Yeah. It's a marriage of, it's the the marriage to the old guy is a marriage of convenience for land. So clearly I should just say that I'm terrible recapping plots, which if anybody's ever heard me tell like any... <laughs> Anybody ever ask me what my books are about? Like, I'm terrible. No, but, like, the stepbrother is important because he is in love with her and it's gross. So, pause. This is a really fabulous setup because, first of all, virgin widows were super popular in the <laughs> 90s because you could both be married and also not have ever had sex, you dirty slut. Right? <laughs> right. So there was that. But also, it sets it up in the in the sense that, like, well here's a horrible dude who she married to get away from her horrible stepbrother and if she doesn't have an heir like her instinct is like is very keen here in the sense that she's like if i have an heir i still get to be away from this guy like if i don't have an heir i have to go back to living in this house with him i mean it is kiss of a demon king except for the fact that these are not fated mates <laughs> so rowena I would argue he is. He sends out his men. She really doesn't have much to do with it. He's the evil stepbrother, and I forget his name because he's gross. Gilbert, I think. Oh, it's Gilbert. I was like, we'll call him Omart. Sure, Gilbert, Omart. It's the same. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, sends out men to essentially, like, find a man in the nearest town that looks a little like this old guy. Blonde hair, blue eyes. That's all we need. And then we're going to bring him back. We're going to chain him to the bed. And she is going to have her way with him a bunch of times over a couple days to just make sure that seed takes root. Pause. Also pretty fucking amazing. Joanna Lindsay was making a point here. I think it's like impossible not to argue this because we're talking about a classic romance plot, i.e. kidnapping and rape of the heroine and flipping it on its head. This is a rape book. He is chained to her bed and she has no choice but to. Can I tell you one other thing, though, before we continue on and talk about the raping? The book itself takes place in the year 1152. And I spend a lot of time thinking about that because... Like, we talk about how paranormal is now where, like, bonkers romance plots can live. I don't even think readers would have bought this plot in 1800 or 1700. Like, I don't think there's any way for this book to take place without us being like, this is so far in the fucking past, who the hell knows what was happening? Now, thanks to Wikipedia, you guys, I want you to appreciate me. <laughs> I looked up 1152. Oh like, what the fuck God. was happening in the world in the 1152? You know who was around? Eleanor of Aquitaine. <laughs> oh, really? 
Yes. And I was like, I remember loving that fucking movie, The Lion in Winter. Yeah. I, my first car, which was like a, like a shitty Toyota Tercel, I named Eleanor after Eleanor of Aquitaine in that movie. But like the whole plot in that movie is that she has to, of the, I'm sorry, not her, the plot of her life. Sorry. She's a real person. <laughs> yeah. Is that in, in 1152, she is, her marriage is annulled from one man so she can like marry another and I just thought that it was really interesting that, like, nothing happens in 1152, but this, like, really famous one historical woman is, like, leaving one man behind for another. And I just thought that was interesting. Also, side note, today I tweeted about Peter O'Toole not knowing at all we were going to talk about the lion in winter, but Peter O'Toole could get it. Oh, well, yes, he could. Fine. Okay. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> so part of what – part of the joy of this book for me um, – because it is so bonkers, is how furious Warwick, oh, yeah. that's his name, right? Warwick? Warwick, yeah. Um, Warwick is when this happens, which makes perfect sense, right? Like, he's enraged. And what I love about this is that it just, it flips the entire script on, like, how how these romances have been written prior to, ni- to the 90s. Because, I mean, when you harken back to, like, rape on the page of the heroine being sort of really commonplace in romances prior to that it's almost like joanna Lindsay said like i'm fed up with this business we're turning it around and i think there's no question that cressley read and probably loved this book well if you ever use your phone a friend it's on our list and you get to ask her questions please ask her but to me it's it's a clearly you know influenced it's pretty straightforward i would it's a straight up homage for sure. Yeah. It can't not be. And it's kind of amazing because the tricky thing with these books is both of them is that there has to be a way for you to unlock the heroine as the reader, right? Like they do unlikable things. They do really abhorrent things, both of them. And so the way that Joanna Lindsay does it is she establishes like true panic about her future if she returns to her brother. And the way that jo- the way that uh, Cressley does it is is similar, except she throws in the sister. So suddenly there's like a added familial issue to to play with here. And of course, there's this other third piece, which is she's destined to have a child with yeah. Rydstrom, and that child will ultimately be a tool of for the well of souls. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, what. <laughs> <laughs> If Lothair doesn't get it first. If, if, yeah, if everyone, I mean, everyone wants it, right? <laughs> I love it. Here's the thing I'm, I actually, and I don't know if you remember this, Sarah or Joanna. It's, there are other female characters in Prisoner of My Desire, but they're um, Warwick's daughters. And two of them, it's like they're very Cinderella-esque, right? Two of them are just like super bitchy. And then one of them is illegitimate. and Yeah, like, the bastard. Yes, yeah. Emma, right? Like, I was interested in the things that get switched from one book to the next. And one is that the Emma character, who Rowena becomes really, I think, helpful to, instead seems to be like Melanthe. Like, Mm -hmm. it's built into the system on Sabine's side from the very beginning. Well, and doesn't Warwick also bring Rowena back to his castle and, like, make her a servant? Like, he makes her his slave, right? A serf. He rapes her. And she has to serve him and bathe him and attend him at all times, which he says is his right as 
the lord of the manor. I don't think Cressley could have pulled that piece off. I think the difference is, is that in 2018, the two characters have to be equals in a way that in 1991, right. like the power structure could, was a, it, it could be different. Well, even in this book, uh, he's out of her control by in the first quarter. It is not that long that she mm-hmm. like has him. But in Kiss of a Demon King, it's like half and half. Like mm-hmm. I actually went and looked because I was curious about that same thing. Yeah. I mean, it's just because time marches, right? This conversation is like proof of we've talked so much over the course of the podcast about what Cressley might be saying about romance in general and about modernity and about the way the world has changed. Like this feels like a really concrete example of like how you can see how romance has evolved over time. I mean, there are moments in Kiss of a Demon King where Sabine is watching Rydstrom fight and she's impressed and then thinks to herself, why am I impressed with him? Like, I'm the most powerful sorceress that ever lived. Like, I (laughs) should be the one. And I don't know that Rowena ever would have had that thought in her head. You know, at, at that point of romance writing, it just was the hero came and saved the day and, you know, the heroine just watched and cheered from the side. Joanna, what do you think about this? Like when we talk about enemies to lovers, right, as a trope, how do either of these books showcase what that trope can do? Or is there any way in which it subverts it? Like that's always a question I'm really interested in when people talk about like their favorite tropes. Like why is it working here? Or is there a way that it's just doing something like really different that makes it like the pinnacle of its like, you know, of its kind? What I find interesting about both of the books, I think in a lot of enemies to lovers, uh, they, you know, they each have to have their reasons for doing despicable things. And clearly both books establish that. But I think what's interesting about both of these books is the other person doesn't find out the reasons until very, very late in the book. Uh, you know, Rowena doesn't tell Warwick about her stepbrother. And is her mother, too. The danger to her mother. Right. And, uh, you know, Sabine doesn't really fill Rydstrom in on on why she's done what she's done. Because she, you know, she doesn't trust him. And then she's worried that uh, Omort will read her thoughts. And the duplicity goes on for a long time in these maybe longer than other enemies to lovers. I don't know. Is duplicity a piece of it? For the trope to work, does there have to be a secret? And I, maybe it's not a secret, but I think about like Sally Thorne's The Hating Game as being like the pinnacle of like the contemporary enemies to lovers story. And it is rivals to lovers, right? It's two people who work in an office together. And there is a secret in that there is they're in competition with each other for an obvious, for a promotion. And only one can survive. So there's this sort of back and forth about what they each potentially know about who might be getting what. But then on top of it, there is this sort of resistance to admitting that they care for each other. And I feel like that's a really interesting secret in in Enemies to Lovers that isn't there in other books. Like with other books, you can say if you're writing, I don't know, whatever other trope it is, fake fiance, right? Like at some point, it's okay for them to admit that they're having feelings for each other. But in Enemies to Lovers, it feels like it hurts them to ma- to confess that because it sort of changes, like it changes them at their core. Right. And nothing's better than hate sex. <laughs> the, I mean, sign me up. Like, yes, anytime. I love it. Have you written Enemies to Lovers? 
Joanna? A little bit. Yes. A harlot countess has a little bit of it. I have this theory with writers. I'm always sort of curious because I feel like a lot of us don't write our favorite trope. But I mean, like, is it subconscious that we choose not to write the thing that we love the most? I think I haven't really, because I'm afraid. I love it so much. I'm afraid of getting it wrong. Yeah. I do think the bones of, of enemies lovers are really diff- I think it's an incredibly diff- difficult thing to pull off, which is why I love IED so much. I feel like as I was like thinking about which ones I would want to talk about other than, you know, these two, that almost every contemporary enemies to lovers, it's a really a workplace drama, right? Like it's an external conflict. Some, and it's often about work that fuels it. And I think part of that is because, like, in our modern society, like, what what other things do we, like, war about, right? I mean, and, and honestly, I, I feel like it's political, maybe. I'm not going to read. I, I refuse to read a Republican hero right now. I'm not going to do it. And I wouldn't understand a Republican heroine. <laughs> I, I wouldn't. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about my um, my choice for this because um, it is it is contemporary and it's not a workplace. Um so my pick is Sarah Mayberry's Her Best Worst Mistake. Oh, yeah. Um, which is Sarah Mayberry writes some of the best category romances, I think, around. it's This is a spinoff. It's a self-published um, spinoff of a Bla- Harlequin Blaze novel. Um, it's like the friend of the bride in that novel. Um, and the premise is the hero is this, like, really uptight kind of Mark Darcy style like kind of stick up his ass British dude who was engaged to the heroine of the Blaze novel Um, and she has a best friend and her best friend Violet has known the friend and Martin the hero for years She's known Martin as long as he's no he knew her friend and as long as they were engaged and she's hated him the whole time because he's so he's such a Darcy character like he's such a jerk and he's so cold and unfeeling and he never laughs and like everything about him is like impenetrable and not great and she has sort of made that very clear to her friend that she doesn't think he's good enough for her. He doesn't think she's a good enough fiancé. She doesn't think that her friend should make a life with him. Through a confluence of events, the friend leaves the engagement, drops him, and, like, walks away and disappears and leaves Violet basically holding the bag. Like, he comes to her at the beginning of this book, and he's like, fuck you. You ruined my life. You have always hated me for no reason. You don't know me. And... I hate you too. <laughs> and um, at the very beginning, I'm pretty sure he's drunk. Like he's been drinking a lot of like the champagne from like some party. And he just goes to her house and he rails at her because he basically says like, you are the whole reason why my my life has fallen apart. Like you've hated me from the start. And now my life is over. My marriage is not happening. My fiance is gone. And this is on you. And he just says he unpacks himself onto her. And she feels like an asshole, but she still hates him. <laughs> and she resists this sort of like instant attract. And it's sort of an instant sympathy for him. And then inst- then immediately there's like a new layer of attraction. Like once she sees like how passionate he can be, 
when he's pushed to the limit, she's like, oh, wait a second. And then it's really about the two of them. I mean, there's another whole piece, which is he once was engaged to her best friend. So there's like that's complicated for her. But there it moves forward and it unpacks itself in this very like interesting push pull of I have always identified myself via you through anger and hate. And you have always been my enemy. Who am I if you're not my enemy anymore? I like that book a lot. That sounds really good. (laughs) And I'm like, well done, Sarah. Let me ask you this, though, because I'm always really curious about like enemies to lovers. Like, is it that like the attraction was always there and they didn't realize it? Or is it that something changes it and like flips a switch? Well, I think it's the, you know, the old adage is that love and hate are so close. And I think, yeah, I think it's that you're drawn to this person. You don't know why. You don't like them for reasons or you, you know, you've wronged them for reasons and then it just gets flipped. Yeah, I think there's something to this idea, too, that we hate. We get very uncomfortable when we're faced with people who are very similar to us. And I think enemy, the best enemies to lovers, and I think this is part of why so many of Cressley's uh, enemies to lovers books feel this way, is they're about like equal like well-matched power or well-matched characteristics in the sense that like um, at least in this one like Violet and Martin they may seem externally like she's sort of kind of crazy and like has she's like fun loving and and funny and cool and he's the opposite but like they have the same kind of loyalty to relationships and loyalty to friendships that they are similar incredibly similar to each other and maybe they hate each other in part because of that like maybe Sabine and Rydstrom hate each other because they're both working for something bigger than them like Sabine's sort of very open about hating the like loyal nobility in her core. She hides it so much. And then but Rydstrom like has spent all his life sort of giving himself up to it. And so he hates it too in some way. And maybe that's part of it is like you hate the person you are and you love the person you are. Back to like Prisoner by Desire for one minute, which is there's a really interesting part that I thought like was to me kind of like the core of enemies to lovers, which is she's it's Rowena's thinking and and it's she wished she could not see his side of it, but she did. She wished he could see her side of it, but he would not. And I think it points out something about like intent, like when enemies to lovers is really cooking, it's like they refuse to see each other. And I think Mm -hmm. enemies to lovers doesn't work if they're both not stubborn as fuck. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what makes the best the best enemies to lover lovers book is when they both are super stubborn. They both have their own reasons for being stubborn and they won't bend even when they can see it. Like, that's the part I love. Right. I can see where they're coming from, but I I can't get off the path I'm on for whatever reason. Or like I've changed my mind about this person But I can't admit it. Right. Yeah. Stubbornness is a huge piece of it. So maybe I could talk about mine next. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about A Matter of Disagreement by E.E. Ottoman, which is a novella. And it is a delight. It's It's an interesting romance. It's a historical, but it has like a vaguely steampunk feel. And the two heroes are enemies because they are fighting over, like, what kind of science will be primary. And, you know, that's, like, totally my wheelhouse. (laughs) I'm like, oh, there's 
one of a lot them, of discussion of the moon they one of them gregory has a like amazing like his own telescope in like a planetarium or something because you know they're like both lords or whatever and so one of the things that's really interesting part of the reason that they're enemies though is so the other hero's name is um andrea lord ashcroft and this is where the steampunky feeling comes in he is um interested in like magic as a way of animating like things Whereas Gregory is more into like mechanics. Mm -hmm. So it's like there's this like warring like sort of sense of like which one of these scientific things will be primary. And it's interesting to me because it's not real, right? Because like magic or like spellcraft or whatever versus mechanics is clearly like a made up thing. I'm not going to know if it's like solar versus coal. (laughs) I'm going to know which side comes out winning. But in this case, because it's like manufactured it just seemed like instead i could focus on the the dilemma of it and as it turns out like the side of mechanics is winning and what is really upsetting to andrea about this and i just thought this was like a delightful subplot right like you read a lot of historicals where they like love science and it's the like the gentleman's thing that they do to keep busy he has like essentially like a graduate student with a wife and a young baby and he has to try and support them. So his commitment to his like scientific cause is also a responsibility. And Gregory, on the other hand, although he is very like wealthy and well-heeled and people kind of want his family's money, and there's some really interesting gender dynamics is a transgender man, but it's kind of a magical process that he went through to become transgender. And he's a little bit looked down upon by the other, the nobility, right? Like they want his money and they hang out with him, but he can tell he's treated differently. And I just really found like the the whole thing about responsibility versus ambition. I mean, I don't know, it like really weighed out too, like, Yeah, essentially, it's like a workplace drama, but what drives them each is different. And so it wasn't like they were stubborn as much as it was like, but my way is the way I've always thought things should work. I've never had to think about it your way. Mm -hmm. Right? It didn't feel as aggressively, like the Hayden game is sort of aggressively, right? Like them like sniping at each other. And this didn't feel that way at all. And I really ended up, I, I loved it. It's doing enemies to lovers, but I think in a way that is like a little, like I said, I think you it, they see each other's point of view, but you as the reader really see like how, how both of them are um, like trying to like kind of, I don't know, like live their scientific lives with dignity. I think that's the nerdiest thing I've ever said on here. <laughs> so here's my question about this though, right? Because if it's like, if they're being decent to and this is a question if they're being decent to each other is it really enemies to lovers okay so yes and here's why like the differences in their worldview are so pronounced and like they're in competition for like essentially like funding for their own science paths or whatever so I think at the beginning, now it's pr- it's a novella so it's like way more compact. I don't I don't know that Given, like, the lightweight nature of their disagreement compared to, like, Prisoner of My Desire or whatever. (laughs) You can't. You can't, right? (laughs) I I don't think it could have. I think it's, like, the right length, right? Because it unspools, like, this conflict between them and shows their different worldviews. Yeah. But then also essentially shows how they, like, come to an agreement about what they disagree over and then how it is that they can, like, learn to understand each other's point of view. 
which I think all enemies to lovers is at some level, right? Yeah. And, you know, what I love is in to that point, you know, in Kiss of a Demon King, Rydstrom says several points to himself, do nothing irrevocable. Yeah. You know, I cannot cross the line, the point of no return with her if, you know, we're ever to have any kind of future. So yeah, yeah, I think it it matters, you know, where they go. Where the line is. Yeah, one really interesting thing in this book in particular is that Gregory's family is sort of um, wealthy and well-heeled. And there's some sort of subplot where like Andrea's sister is going to maybe marry into Gregory's family. And and Gregory's like, well, she just wants to marry into my family because we're the nobility. And Andrea's like, yeah, that's how it fucking works. Like, you know, like there's a way in which he's really pragmatic. Like, yes, we're part of the aristocracy. We marry each other for our connections and our cash. And I thought it was really interesting to have, like, I don't, it was just like really well done, right? And he was kind of like, what are you so twerked up about this for? Like, of course, that's how it works. This is who our people are. And I think that that's part of, like, Gregory's, like, you know, he's not just the enemy of, like, magic. He's sort of the enemy of, like, all of these, like, stiff upper neck people who don't really accept him. Right. They want his money and his connections, but they don't really accept him. And that plays out in a lot of ways. It also, by the way, goes from like zero to 100 in terms of like the sexiness factor. Like I was like, oh, it's just kissing only. And then in the last chapter, I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, hello. <laughs> Whoa, man. Well, that's like a novella problem. Like, yeah, sure. I've only written one novella. <laughs> so and I, I wrote an anthology with Joanna, um, How the Dukes Stole Christmas. But um, I did realize, like, at some point I was like, oh, oh, crap, they have to do it, too. Like, when is that going to happen? <laughs> In a matter of disagreement. This is why um, my novella is the longest of <laughs> the novellas, because I was like, I don't even, I guess they do it now. <laughs> I just want to say, I just want to note, you know, I appreciate the vigor in which once they do it, they do it. Right. <laughs> There is a lot of doing, and it is Thank something you. else. I took a Stephanie Lawrence approach to this novella where, like, if – I don't, I mean, I don't know if you guys were reading Stephanie, like, back in the day when she was – when she came out What's with the What's the one with Devil's – The Devil's uh, Bride? Devil's Bride. Oh, shit. Which, I love that book. For – fun fact, for, like, basically all of our relationship until, I don't know, like, a year ago, Devil Sinster was the only – romance hero eric could name because he thought it was so ridiculous that his name was devil sinster and about oh i don't know like five years ago like way too recently he turned to me and he was like you realize the part of the reason why it's such a terrible name is because sinster is supposed to be a homonym for sinister and i was like oh my god oh you you guys did i was like come on i was like And I had not. Look, Joanna, too. She's like, what? I had no idea. <laughs> Are you guys serious right now? I was like, why do you keep saying sinister? It's obviously sinister. <laughs> no, I had no idea. Wow. We don't know. We don't care. We're like, whatever. <laughs> I was like, Eric, I knew. <laughs> you know what? I don't know if Daryl could name a romance hero. I'm going to test him and report back next time. I should say I include my own romance heroes in that <laughs> In, in that statement he couldn't name any of them but in back in the day stephanie was known for like writing a 25 page sex scene in a book 
Like when, they might not do it for a while, but when they did, they were doing two it. Chapters. <laughs> so I've always just you know gone that route. I figured it's good enough for Stephanie Lawrence. It's good enough for me. <laughs> I do have a question because we talked about road trip romances last last interstitial, and as you know, I talked about Tycoon because it's like my favorite road trip romance of all time. I think I may have teased during that episode that you have a great story about sex and carriages. I do. <laughs> so would you please share with us your story about sex and carriages? And then we will do our Q&A, our quick and dirty Q&A. You know, from researching various things for your books, there are, <laughs> there are things that you just need to know. And I wanted to have characters have sex in a carriage. But I didn't want just heavy petting. I wanted full penetration. And I wanted to know, is it possible? Because the second you put something in a historical that is uh, incorrect or, you know, even questionable, you hear about it. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't want uh, any emails saying there's no way that that could happen. (laughs) So I started Googling and I ended up in a rabbit hole of porn on the internet (laughs) and carriage porn exists historically accurate porn (laughs) yes wait carriage porn exists yes show notes are going to be amazing you guys (laughs) wait what did i what was i trying to google the other day for show notes and i was like i've made a terrible mistake chastity belt porn somebody found us Hi, listener. We discovered that you found us by searching chastity belt porn. We have no idea why, but welcome. (laughs) But welcome. We're so glad you're here. Now we're talking about carriage porn. (laughs) Yes, I found um, a porn where they are in period period garb and they are having full penetrative sex in a carriage, an enclosed carriage. So it can be done. Can be done. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. Was a horse pulling that carriage or was it just like stationary? Oh, like it, it was stopped. It was stopped. <laughs> I mean, Wait, le- added level of difficulty. Who was it? A, what, so it was an enclosed carriage. It was a coach. It was not a barouche. Yes. <laughs> right. Okay. I'm rolling my eyes, everybody. I'm like, what? I just got that wrong. I just for sure someone's going to be like a barouche does not have a top or has a top or has a whatever side. It's fine. Cool. There's also fun fact, a carriage museum out in Stony Brook, Long Island. Um, we will link to that in show notes, too. We do not suggest trying to work out penetrative sex in the carriage museum. No, for sure not. 160 uh, carriages there. It's the largest collection of carriages in America. It didn't look super comfortable. No, it's not. And definitely when it's like those big hev- those big wooden wheels clattering along the like bumpy road. Right. For sure, it was not. It's just a quick trip to a backache. But can we be real? Like every time I read an every time I read in anything about anybody having sex in a car or a carriage or on a horse or whatever, I'm always like, why? Why? <laughs> well, I mean, if you're in a carriage, it's basically like being on a train car. Like you have you you have a long way to go. Right. It's very slow going. What else are you gonna do in there? Talk, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one way. wants to read about that. I was like, <laughs> read a book. I don't know you guys. Sew. You're going to sew, embroider. It's but then it's so bumpy. It's not going to be good. So you might as well just use the bumpy for your, your advantage. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> Fine. All right, Joanna, we are going to, um, we have a few questions for you. These should be pretty easy. <laughs> 
And just quick, just quick, quick questions relating to IAD and romance novels in general. Um, who is your favorite IAD hero? Rydstrom, please. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're like, okay. yeah, he's Got my it. man. And who is your favorite heroine? Sabine. Sabine's hilarious. She is really funny. She is hilarious. Okay. So th- we're going to need just a straight up or down vote on the following things. <laughs> All right. Horns. Yes. Okay. Sexy. Claws. No. Not sexy. <laughs> Fangs. Sexy? <laughs> sexy. I think sexy. Oh, that's amazing. Um, And what Kate Claiborne refers to as the wolf hologram. What's that? That's the when he like the like it's thing. when there's a full moon and they go full beast. No, no, thank you. <laughs> it's a no for that's me. a pass. <laughs> no, <laughs> you weren't even like thinking you're like mm, sex. Yeah, thank no. you. Um, if you had to lose a limb and have it regenerate, <laughs> which limb would it be? <laughs> wow. Can it be small? Does it have to be like a leg? No, it could be whatever you like. I mean, Cade lost some fingers. It was pretty gross watching them regenerate. Yes. So, I mean, you know, think about that. But also, you know, it could be a creative way of losing a a limb. I think I would pick like a foot. Oh, that's good. That's a solid choice. Would you rather be able to trace to be able to dream other people's memories or be ever knowing? Trace. Me too. I'd never have to commute again. (laughs) <laughs> like short drive by yeah a real lame reason to it would be awesome to go trace. anywhere you want at any time <laughs> yes true. and all knowing feels very heavy and very yes well and she's fucking crazy right like, it feels like yeah. a lot feels like a lot also dreaming other people's memories feels like it could be super not great would you rather be a witch or a valkyrie valkyrie because they i feel like they kick serious ass yes mm-hmm. Agreed. And uh, what's your comfort read? Not of ID or other places. What's the the book you turn to in darkness? Probably Lead by Kylie Scott, which is also another enemies to lovers romance. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Um, But uh, yeah, that that's one that I've reread, I think, probably eight or nine times. I don't think I've read that one. Is that the Lick series? Yes. Okay. Yeah, he's the lead singer, Jimmy Ferris. And she's his assistant. Oh, I fucking I love those. Oh god, it's They're delicious. Such a problem and I can't stop. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I regret nothing. <laughs> and um what's the romance novel you recommend to people who are new to romance novels? Gosh, that's a hard one. I did not know that question was coming. I know. You could pass if you don't have. You can pass. That's a hard one. Or you could also talk about like how you feel that question. Or how about this? What's the Joanna Shoup novel people should start with? Well, um, gosh, probably. (laughs) (laughs) I'd I'd rather answer. I hate talking about my own books. Um, I probably would send people to Nine Rules to break when romancing a rake. I would because it's. So it's perfect. It's perfect. It really is. And it's so um, funny and so such a perfect example of sort of where the genre just, in my opinion, took a turn for the better. And she's such a unique heroine. And the story is just so 
fun, that would probably be where I would send people. It's really very kind. <laughs> um, Joanna, thank you so much for joining us for Faded Mates. Thanks for having me. We hope you'll come back sometime and do another one. Anytime. So, Joanna, where can we find you? Um, online, joannashoop.com or on Twitter or Facebook at uh, Joanna Shoop. My next book coming out is at the end of May, and it is called The Rogue of Fifth Avenue. Love that title. It's a great title. Thank you. It is uh, the lawyer in New York City who's like a lawyer to all the fabulously wealthy people. Um, he's been in all the other three previous books that I've written, so um, it should be fun. Excellent. Well, n- next week on Faded Mates, we will be tackling the novellas. The Warlord Wants Forever and Untouchable, which you can find in the anthology called Deep Kiss of Winter, which also has a Gina Showalter story. There seems to be some confusion about this. The Warlord Wants Forever is a standalone novella and there are two versions of it. So if you have an old version that's in an anthology, that's the old version. Cressley has rewritten this novella and it is now available in E or narrated by Jen's favorite, Robert Petkoff. And uh, yes, Untouchable is in the Deep Kiss of Winter anthology. And just read them both. You can do it. We believe in you. Join us for that next week, next Wednesday. Joanna, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, guys. This is awesome. We love you. We love your books. Um, find Joanna online. Read one of her books. Um, I think she's just amazing. I can't say enough good things and i love her books i love them. thank you for joining us again i want to make a joke right now about how it was the clap but not the clap <laughs>